If you've not done so already, you can open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. In these verses, as I said, we are introduced to the servant of the Lord, but, but in the first stanza, we don't actually hear the servant speak, but rather we hear God speaking to his people. And he is making it clear to them that they are in exile because of their sins. Their exile is not the result of, of his faithlessness. It's, it's not the result of his this is, this is what the people so often assume when they find themselves in a hard place. Earlier on in Isaiah, we, we heard the people say, the Lord has forgotten us. The, the Lord has forsaken us as if God had forgotten his promises or if he had just turned his back on the, the people to whom he had pledged himself. All this was his fault. But God says to them, no, no, I am not to, to blame I think it's a message that we need to hear ourselves. Because like the people of Israel in Isaiah's day, we sometimes, maybe often, want to blame God for our hardships. Even if we don't say it aloud, we, we think to ourselves, how could an all-good, all-powerful God let this happen? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever, have you ever thought that way? How could God let things be this way? If God is who he claims to be, why does my life look the way it looks? When we say such things, even if we are only saying them in our hearts, even if we would never dare say them out loud, we are in effect saying that God is responsible for our suffering. God is responsible for our hardship. This is his fault. That's how it was in the days of Isaiah. The people in exile wanted to blame God for their trouble. They wanted to blame God for the fact that they had been conquered by the Babylonians. And so here the Lord speaks to the people and says to them, What you are thinking is simply not true. On the contrary, your exile is the result of your own Sin. And, we, and we see this when we make sense of the imagery in this opening stanza. That the Lord is speaking as a husband and as a, as a father. That's clear enough. But we notice that he refers to both his wife and to his children. He, he refers to his wife, the mother of his children, and then to his, his children. And, and we might be tempted to think that these are, are two different people. That they, that they represent two different groups. But that's not actually true. What we need to understand is that both the mother and the children represent Israel. Both represent the people of God. The, the mother seems to represent the people corporately. They represent the, the nation as a whole, while the children seem to represent the people individually. But both the mother and the children are Israel. They, this is the, 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 the chosen people of God. And that's why the Lord can say at the end of verse 1, For your transgressions, speaking to the children, so, so for the transgressions of the children, your mother was sent away. For the transgressions of the people, the nation, had been taken into exile. That's the point that the Lord is making. It's why he begins by asking, Where is your mother's certificate? Of divorce. The certificate of divorce that's, that's being referred to here is the one that's, that's mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the one that a husband would give to his wife when he simply didn't want to be married to her anymore. 
when he, when he found something unacceptable about her, when he, was, when he was no longer pleased with her, it was actually a way that God had, had woven protection for the woman into the very fabric of that society. Because a, a husband could not just get rid of his wife, he had to give her a certificate of her to prove that she was not at fault. That, that the, the marriage dissolved because of his choice. The, the certificate was proved that, that the, the marriage dissolved because of the husband's faithlessness. It was, it was proved that the, that the wife had not been unfaithful. And God is asking the people to produce their certificate of divorce. Where is the certificate that demonstrates their innocence? Where is the certificate that demonstrates that, that they are not the ones at fault? It's, it's obviously a rhetorical question. The, the point is that they don't have one. They do not have such a certificate because the Lord did not send her away without cause. On the contrary, the, the divorce, the, the separation between the Lord and His people, it was the result of her faithlessness. It was the result of her transgression, the result of her sins. The same question, or the second question, makes the, the same point. Which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you, the Lord asks? Now again, you have to understand the context. In the, in the ancient Near East, a man who had accumulated debts that he could not pay, he could sell himself, or more often, he could sell his dependents, he could sell his wife and his children into slavery in order to pay off those debts. And in effect, he was paying off his debts with their future labor. So God is asking, did I, did I sell you into slavery to pay off my own debts? Again, it's, a, it's an absurd question. Of course God didn't sell his people into slavery to pay off his own debts. God doesn't have debts. God doesn't have creditors. And, and that's the point. That's why he asks the question to, to expose the ridiculousness of their claims. And that is why he can say at the end of verse 1, Behold, he says, Look, here's the truth. For your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. This is the, the point that, that God is driving home. He, he, is, he is showing them clearly that, that their exile, their exile is the result of their own faithlessness. The exile is the result of their own failures. And not only were they sent into exile because of their own sins, but they remain there because of their sins. This is the point that we, we see in verses 2 and 3. The Lord asked, Why, when I came, was there no man? And why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Think about what those, those questions imply. That the image of God coming to His people is used throughout the Scriptures. And when God comes to His people, most often, He is coming to rescue them. He is coming to deliver them. He, he is coming because he has heard their cries and, and, and he has set his affection on them and intends to, to bring them out of their trouble. This is what we hear, for example, in, in Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord says, I have come down to deliver my people out of the hand of the Egyptians. I, I have come to bring them up out of their slavery into a good, broad land. I have come to rescue them. This is how the image of, of God coming to his people is, is used throughout the scriptures. And yet, what does the Lord say? He says, when I came, I found no one. So we hear about 
came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus came, but the Lord came, and no one came to him. No one greeted him. It's the same thing that we, we see in the second question, the, the image of God calling his people again. It, it suggests that God is calling them back to himself. He, he is inviting his rebellious son to come home. And yet, when the Lord called, no one answered. The Lord came and, and no one was there. The Lord called and, and no one answered. In other words, the Lord is saying that the people were sent into exile because of their sins, and they remain in exile because of their stiff-necked, hard-hearted refusal to repent and to return to the Lord. It is not that God is unable to save them. It is that they will not be saved. Again, this is the, the point that he goes on to, to stress. Notice what the Lord says. He says, Listen, look, my hand is not shortened that it cannot redeem. Now that, that can mean a couple of things. It, it, it's possible that the, the idea of a, of, a, of a shortened hand means a, a, is the image of a, of a warrior who, who cannot effectively fight in, in battle. Some commentators think that the idea of a, of a short hand is actually the, uh, uh, someone who is, is low on funds, who can't buy his way out of, out of debt. Either way, the, the image is the same. The Lord is saying, listen, it's not that I lack money, it's not that I lack power to redeem. My power is more than enough, more than enough to deliver. After all, I am the God who does what? I am the God who rebukes the dry sea, and it dries up. I am the God who can turn a river into a desert. It, it seems to be a, a picture of God bringing his people up out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea to escape the Pharaoh. And we see the same thing in the, the next picture. He is the God who closed the heavens with blackness like sackcloth. Again, it seems to be a, a reference to the, the plague of blackness and darkness that God brought upon Egypt when he was rescuing his people from their enslavement. And so God is, is saying, listen, I am the God of, of all power. I am the God who, who does whatever he chooses by the mere word of his power. <coughs> And therefore, it is not possible that I am unable to save. If you remain in bondage, if you remain in exile, it is not because I have not come to you. It's not because I have not called you. It's because you have not come to me. It's because you have not responded when I called. It is at this point that we are introduced to the servant. It's at this point, really, without introduction, that the servant begins to speak. The Lord has, has spoken to his people. The Lord has, has made it clear that they are in exile because of their sin, and they remain in exile because of their unrepentant heart. But then, at this point, the, the servant says, The Lord has given me a tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is sort of comes out of the blue, but, but suddenly, what does the, the servant say? The servant says, but the Lord has taught me how to sustain the weary with the word. In other words, God, God's power, not only is, is, is there as potential, but God's power to redeem is there as a person. It is there as 
the servant. The, the Lord not only has the power to save, he has prepared a Savior. He has prepared exactly the one that the Lord, or that the people need. And he has prepared him first, we're told, by, by giving him a tongue. By giving him the tongue of one who was taught. That is, by giving him the tongue of a disciple. Giving him the, the tongue of one who learns and, and, and follows. Here is the servant of the Lord, the, the faithful one, the obedient one. And because he has learned from the Lord, he is able to do what? He is able to sustain with a word him who is weary. Who is this weary one that he is talking about? Seems to be the one who has been striving to secure his own life. The one who has been striving to, to find his, his own life, to kindle his own fire, to, to walk in his own life. The, the one who has been going his own way, doing his own thing, and is worn out by the endeavor. This is the one who is weary. And God says, I have sent a servant who can speak a word to this weary one that will sustain him, that will bring him comfort. It's as if he is driving home the point that God's hand is not short. God's power is not deficient. He is able to save, and he has provided a Savior. He has provided a servant who has this word of life that sustains the weary one. We see this even more clearly in what the, the servant says next. How is it that the servant came to know this word? How, how is it that, that the servant came to know this, this word of life? He came to know it because morning by morning, the Lord woke him and woke his ear. He gave him the, not only the tongue for something, but he gave him the, the ear of a disciple. And you have to remember again that, that, that in that context of to hear, it is to hear in faith, to, to hear with obedience. And so this servant learned the, the, the word that sustains the weary. He learned, he learned the good news. He, he learned the, the gospel that brings life. He learned this word by, by listening to the Lord, by listening in faithful obedience to the Lord. And so this faithful one, this obedient one, this, this true disciple, he is the Savior that the people need. He is the one who is able to, to bring comfort to them. He is the one who is able to sustain them in their weariness. And so the point is being made that it is the Lord. It is the Lord God who, who gave them this tongue. It is the Lord God who, who gave them this ear. And therefore, it is the Lord God who has prepared and equipped the servant to be a Savior. It is the Lord God who has prepared the consolation of Israel, who has prepared the comfort that the people so desperately need. And so if they remain in exile, it is not because the Lord has forgotten them. It's not because the Lord has, has forsaken them. No, if they remain in exile, it is because they did not answer him when he called. They remain in exile. It's because they refuse to come home. So at this point, the, the story takes a strange turn. We see the Lord speaking to the people and saying, listen, you're in exile because of your sins, and you remain in exile because you refuse to repent. 
For I have provided the servant that is able to comfort you. I have provided the servant that is, that is able to, to bring you home. But notice what we're told next. The servant, this, this faithful one, this one who has the tongue and the, the ear of a disciple, this one who hears and obeys the word of the Lord. Notice the nature of his obedience. We see this in the beginning of verse 6. What, what does the servant do in obedience to the Lord? What does this faithful one do? He gives his back to those who struggle. And he gives his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. In obedience, he does not hide his face from disgrace and from spitting. Now think about that. Here is the true and faithful disciple. Here is the servant equipped by God to bring salvation to his people. But his obedience leads him to give his back to those who strive. Now, that's actually a, a technical term, that, that those who strike are those who inflict the punishment prescribed by God's law. This is not just a, a random assailant. It's not just that he is beaten in a dark alley somewhere. Rather, he is submitting to the, the official executioner of the nation, so to speak. He is submitting to the one who administers those, those lashes that we hear about in the New Testament, those 40 lashes minus one. He is, he is submitting to the one who administers the, the beating with rods that we hear about the apostles of the Lord being subjected to. In other words, the obedience of the servant leads him to submit to the punishment of the disobedient. That's what's going on here. The, the obedient one is being punished as if he were disobedient. And more than that, he is submitting to the shame that was subjected upon rebels. That's what it means to have your beard pulled out. Pulling out the, the beard was one of the ways that a, that a king would, would humiliate those who rebelled against him. The one who dared to rebel against the king would, would have his beard pulled out as a, as a shot, sign of his subjugation, as a sign of his humiliation. And it is that shame to which the servant submits. And so this servant, this one prepared by the Lord to be the savior of his people, he is willingly submitting not only to the punishment of a rebel, but he's submitting to the shame of a rebel too. And he's doing it willingly. This is, this is not just something that happens. But rather, he gives himself to this in obedience to the Lord. As we hear this, we, we obviously hear a description of our Savior. We're familiar with the story. We, we know that this is what Jesus did for us. As, as, we, as we read through this text, we can, we can see the suffering and the, the death of our Savior. But I want you to understand that how confusing this would have been before people saw Jesus clearly. We're familiar with the story, but if we weren't, we would be utterly confused. Why is the obedient servant punished? Why does his obedience lead him to submit to the one who strikes? Why is the faithful one shamed as if he were 
a rebel. And more importantly, how is it that, that his shameful punishment brings salvation to God's people? That's just not the way salvation works. At least that's what we think. We think that we need a Savior who can defeat our enemies. We need one who strikes, not one who is stricken. We need one who humiliates his foes, not one who is that's what we think. It's the way we think salvation works. It's what we're so often tempted to ask God for. And yet, we couldn't be more wrong about what we actually need. See, his punishment, his shame, was the only way that we could be saved. The only way that the rebellious people of God could be saved. If God came as a conquering king, his people would be left without hope. If he came as a, as a conquering king, the day of his coming would be for them not a day of light, but a day of darkness. Why? Because if he came as a conquering king, his people would have to be counted among his enemies. If he came as a conquering king, we would have to be counted among his enemies. Or as we will hear in the, the fourth and final song next Sunday, we all, like sheep, have turned astray. None is righteous. When God came, no one was found. When God came, no one greeted him. Why? Because by nature we hate him. That, that's hard for us to hear. It's hard for us to hear that we, we hate God in our natural state. But it's true. We, we may want to find ways to, to leverage God's power, but we do not want to submit to him as Lord. We, we may want him to fight our battles, but we do not want him to be our king. By nature, we love the darkness because we love to be free to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And so when he calls, no one Answers. Because as the Apostle Paul will say, none is righteous. No, not one. That doesn't mean that we're all bad as we could be. By God's grace, that's not true. But we are all sinners. We are all rebels by nature. Rebels against God. So therefore, if God came in his power, if he came as a conquering king, we would all be undone. Because we would all be counted among his enemies. But that's not the Savior that God sends. Because he knows it's not the Savior that we need. He does not send a conquering king. He sends a suffering servant. He sends one who will enter into our misery. Who will, who will take on our, our, our fallen flesh. He sends one who, who will suffer with us, that he might bring us out of our suffering into glory. That is the mysterious wisdom of God. God knew that the servant's punishment and shame was the only way that we could be saved. And therefore God sent him to be stricken and afflicted. He sent him to be humiliated. He sent him to suffer 
so that through his obedience, even unto death, he might be equipped to speak a word of comfort that sustains the weary. And we know this is what God intended all along because we, we see it there in verses 7 through 9. Again, notice that the servant's faithful obedience has, has led him to, to punishment. It has led him to humiliation. He says, I, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But, but notice he doesn't stop there. He says, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. I submitted to disgrace and spitting. But the Lord was with me. And therefore, I was not disgraced. I submitted. But I knew that the one who vindicated me was near. And therefore, he says, I have set my face like flint. To turn not to the right or to the left, but to walk the path that he has set before me. This is actually language that the, the gospel writers picks up. Luke tells us that, that Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. When everyone was telling him, hey, don't, don't go there. They're, they don't want you there. They're, they're not going to receive you there. They'll, they'll probably put you to death there. He set his face, face to go and said, I must go to Jerusalem that I might suffer and that I might die, according to the scriptures. God sent the Son to suffer. The Son, the son set his face to, to go to the place of his suffering. Why? The author of Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And what is that joy? Is the joy of bringing many sons to glory. God so loved the world, the world and its rebellion against him, that he sent the Son. The Son so loved those who had been given to him by the Father that, that he willingly submitted his back to the one who strikes. He, he willingly submitted his cheeks to the one who pulls out the beard. He suffered. He was humiliated that he might bring us out of our suffering and humiliation, that he might bring us out of the, the misery of our sin, that he might bring us home to the glory of God's kingdom. That's who the servant is. And that leaves us with a choice. We see it here in the last couple of verses. Verses 10 and 11. We're, we're told about two different people. The one who fears the Lord and the one who does not. The one who, who fears the Lord. What does he do? He obeys the voice of the Lord and he obeys his, his servant. In other words, he receives this word of life from the servant. He, he receives the word that sustains. He receives the Lord word that brings salvation. And what is that word? What is that word of life? It is the good news of Jesus Christ himself. The good news that according to the scriptures, he died for us. And according to the scriptures, he rose again victorious over death so that all who call upon his name shall be saved. And the one who fears the Lord, he receives this word. Even when he's walking in darkness, even when he's still in exile, even when the salvation hasn't yet come, he waits for the Lord and entrusts himself to him. That's us. That's what we're called to this morning. We're called this morning to entrust ourselves to the Lord and to wait upon the return of His Savior when He will bring the completion, 
the good work that he's begun. That's the, the longing of the Advent season. That's the, the longing of the people of God today. We wait on the Lord. Even as we are, even as we find ourselves in darkness, we wait on the Lord. We wait for the salvation that he has promised. The salvation that has been accomplished through the death and humiliation of the Son. But of course, there's a second choice here. Because behold, the prophet says. Behold all you who would kindle your own fire. Behold all you who would equip yourself with burning torches. Those you who would, who would walk by the, the light that you have kindled. These are the ones who do not wait for the Lord. These are the ones who will not rest upon the servant. These are the ones who are still determined to make their own way. They want nothing to do with a humiliated Savior. They want nothing to do with a suffering servant. And so they seek to do what is right in their own eyes. They rely upon their own wisdom. They, they trust in their own schemes and, and plans. But what does the Lord say to them? This is this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down. See, there are only two choices. The Lord is more than able to say that he has provided us a Savior, that he is a suffering Savior. If we would be saved by him, we must wait for him. We must rest upon him, even as we walk in the darkness. For if we reject him and seek to, to kindle our own fires, if we reject him and seek to, to secure our life in some other way, then we will receive from God the just due of all we've done. We will remain in exile now and for eternity. That was the choice that was before the people of God in Isaiah's day, and that is the choice that is before the people of God today. Will we receive and rest upon the Savior that He has provided? It's not the Savior we thought we needed. It's the Savior who can bring us home. It's the Savior who suffered and died in our place that we might live for Him. If you will trust such a Savior, you will live for Him. If you will trust such a Savior, you will never be put to shame. You will trust such a Savior. He will bring you. And because He will, that's why we call this here. Do you believe that? That's what we Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice in the provision of the Savior. We confess that in our human wisdom, He's not the Savior we think we need. He's not the Savior that we want to see. But Father, by your word, we know that he is the only Savior who can bring us Father, give us eyes to see him, hearts to love him, and faith to entrust ourselves to him. Even as we wait in the darkness for that day, he will come again to bring the completion of the work that he has begun. Father, God, we pray this in Jesus' name.